So the movie Knocked Up came out in 2007. I would have been 17 at the time, so I was just barely old enough to buy myself a ticket to see it in theaters. And I remember thinking that this movie was so funny. So it's about a guy and a lady, and they have this one-night stand, and she gets pregnant, and then they have to figure out what to do and how to take care of a baby together. And the scene that I thought was so funny was this moment where the guy who's played by Seth Rogen, he kind of talks to his group of stoner friends about his predicament. And one of them offers this idea that he's not really allowed to say. So he has to use a code word. I think it's awesome that you're going to have a kid, man. Think about it like this. It's just an excuse to play with all your old toys again. You know what I think you should do? Take care of it. Tell me you don't want him to get an A word. Yes, I do, and I won't say it for little baby ears over there, but it rhymes with shmushmorshin. I'm just saying, hold on, Jay, cover your ears. You should get a shmushmorshman at the shmushmorshman clinic. The thing that I really remember about this scene is that it planted a little flag in my 17-year-old brain that even in the company of people who believe that abortion should be safe and accessible and legal, they're always still a little bit shameful. And that they're probably not something that you should talk about in polite company, because if you mention it or suggest it, people will think that you're a bad person. And now, 15 years later, I'm not the only person who has been looking back on that scene and thinking, wait, what? Shmushmorshin. They couldn't even say the word. That's Anne Hornaday. She is the chief film critic for The Post. And she also shakes her head when she looks back on this abortion-shaming scene from Knocked Up. And yes, she knows that this is a movie that's just supposed to be funny. And she thinks that it's not supposed to send some kind of anti-abortion message. I don't want to you know, ascribe views to the filmmakers, you know, that they were trying to do this. But the thing is, this movie did send a message definitely sent a message to me. And for Anne, it's an example of the subtle ways that movies and Hollywood have always played a role in how we think about abortions in America and why we haven't seen more movies where abortions are just a normal, acceptable part of healthcare. Had the culture, you know, had visual culture and pop culture actually reflected that fact You know, both the fact of women's lives and the fact that most Americans do want to keep abortions safe and legal. I don't know. Like, where would we be? Would we be in a different place? I just, you know, it's a question I think that might be worth asking. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, June 3rd. Today, how abortion in the movies changed the way Americans think about reproductive rights. Then, later in the show, we've got a dispatch from the Queen's Jubilee in London. We've got comfortable chairs, lots of blankets, lots of Prosecco, and we're going to, you know, catch up and enjoy the atmosphere and meet lots of people. Right now, we are all waiting to hear how the Supreme Court finally rules on abortion access in America. It's been a time when we've been reflecting on what has changed and what hasn't changed since Roe v. Wade almost 50 years ago. I had been noticing for several years that the way that abortion was treated in film had undergone a strange evolution. Hmm. 
When it really struck me was when the films Juno and Knocked Up came out because they were about sort of post Roe v. Wade protagonists making making decisions about whether to become mothers. The whole plot of those movies had to be advanced in such a way that they took those pregnancies to term and gave birth to children. And I just thought that was that was a fascinating narrative conundrum and also one that had real implications um, in terms of the social context into which they were being released. Basically, it struck Anne as strange that even in 2007, these movies about modern women were framed around their decision to not get an abortion because it actually wasn't always this way. And Anne went back to previous eras of cinema to take a closer look at how filmmakers then were thinking about abortion. I didn't go all the way back to the very beginning of film and the, and and how abortion was portrayed, but I was particularly interested in, in how it was portrayed post Roe v. Wade, you know, post-1973, mm. because it's not surprising that it would have been taboo before then, you know, or seen as kind of a stigma or an unacceptable choice. But then once the law of the land actually coincides with the public opinion in the land, which is that most people do support a woman's right to terminate a pregnancy. How did that change? You know, it was portrayed, I think, sort of honestly and, you know, and I mean just realistically, but intellectually, honestly. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, I guess I mean in terms of how women make these choices, you know, and what the context is. And yes, it is serious, but no, it's not a fatal trauma. It is Hmm. maybe not the most welcome decision a woman will make, but neither is it life-destroying, you know, in terms of her future or her own psychic or spiritual health. There were kind of instances in the next several years after Roe v. Wade where you did see it portrayed that way. And to me, you know, the best example is this movie Parenthood um, directed by Ron Howard. Hmm. And and I know that came out in 1989 starring, I believe, Steve Martin, right? And I think Keanu Reeves is in there too and other people who are still famous now. But talk a little bit about that that movie for people who haven't seen it and a little bit of the context of how abortion starts to figure in. If you haven't seen Parenthood or even if you have and you haven't seen it lately, I strongly suggest people watch hmm. it again because, boy, does this movie hold up. It is a really delightful family comedy. And it's just about this kind of sprawling, extended, sort of comically dysfunctional family and um, kind of how they all love each other and help each other and compete and argue. But at the end of the day, you know, come together. And one of the through lines in the film is sort of people becoming parents in unexpected ways. And one such subplot is the couple played by Steve Martin and Mary Steenburgen. They they have their kids, they have their family where they want, and they do um, encounter an unexpected pregnancy. I think in the film, he's either just lost his job or quit. Uh, you know, there are some economic things to think about. There are just what they, you know, their expectations and what they think is best for the rest of the family. And again, I just think it it put that conversation into such a realistic context. I'm pregnant. Since when? Since I I am. I'm due in February. I didn't want to say anything till I was sure. How did this happen? It was an accident. Anyhow, this is why I'm saying maybe 
Now this isn't the best time for you to be out of work or, or starting a new job. You know, if you'd told me there was a chance of this happening, I might not have quit in the first place. This puts a minor crimp in my life, too. I, I was thinking about starting back to work in the fall. Now I can't. Well, that's the difference between men and women. Women have choices, men have responsibilities. Oh, really? Oh, okay, well, then I choose for you to have the baby, okay? That's my choice. You have the baby. You get fat. You breastfeed till your nipples are sore. I'll go back to work. All right, let's return from la-la land because that ain't gonna happen. Why don't you just say what you're really thinking? What am I thinking? That I should have an abortion? I didn't say that. That's a decision every woman has to make on her own. Are you running for Congress? Don't give me that. Yeah, that's that's I, that's interesting. What, what do you what do you think when you when you listen? I want to tell you this is not the focus of the movie, right? Like this is it's not an abortion movie. It's a fa- it's a movie about family and it's a movie about people. So it's sort of a fond glimpse back at a time when you know this subject could be a part of a plot. It's not the focus of the plot. It is a part of a plot. It's done, I thought, with a lot of compassion and and. Uh, I just thought the tone was really right. And little did we know <laughs> that then it would kind of disappear, you know, as far as I could tell. I mean, it just, but for, for whatever reason, that kind of scene just did not happen very often in mainstream Hollywood movies. I, I want to talk about that starting to disappear. But before we get there, I do want to just talk about one or two other movies um, from this same era. Um, and I know you also have been thinking about Fast Times at Ridgemont High from 1982, this like high school comedy that also has an abortion storyline. And, and maybe talk a little bit about what you're what you were thinking about that movie. I just want you to know that I'm pregnant. How do you know it's mine? I mean, we only did it once. I haven't been with anybody else. I know it's yours. Jesus. I mean, it was your idea. You wanted to do it. I, you wanted it more than I did. No. Take that back. All right, all right. Take it back. Look, we got to do something about it. I mean, uh, we got to get an abortion. My brother Art got his girlfriend one once. It's simple. I mean, it's no big deal. Yeah, I, I got that plan. Um, it's going to cost $150 at the free clinic. Doesn't sound free to me. <laughs> I suppose you want me to pay for it. Half, okay? And a ride to the clinic? $75 and a ride. Wow. Mm. I, I appreciate her, her calm there and her matter-of-factness and saying, no, take that back. Yes, I already have a plan. Yes, I know how much it costs. I think that it's fair if we split this up half and half and you give me a ride. It's seen as a fact of life. Again, not a particularly welcome one, but it happens. Unlike Mary Steenburgen's character in Parenthood, yes, it does happen to young women. Yes, it does happen to teenagers. It's a part of their whole spectrum of healthcare and responses. What I appreciate, even though he's kind of callous and, and I wouldn't say cavalier, but not necessarily a, a profile in in empathy. <laughs> no, but again, not that unreal. You know, it's sort of like that. That sort of rings true in terms of just the developmental stage that most teenage kids are yeah, at. They yeah. are self centered. You know, they're not necessarily the most sensitive. So that's that probably is you know closer to life than not. It's not necessarily stigmatizing her or 
you know, her choices. It's just, it's just a part of life, you know, and, and portrayed as such without a whole lot of spin on the ball. Before we move on from the 1980s, I do want to talk about a very different example from the movie Dirty Dancing. So this movie came out in 1987, but it was set in the early 60s before Roe v. Wade was decided, when abortion was still illegal in most cases. And there's this plot point where a character named Penny needs an abortion and ends up getting an unsafe abortion illegally. One of the counselors knows a doctor, a real MD, just traveling to New Pulse for one day next week. We can get him an appointment, but it costs $250. That was really striking to me that this movie, sort of about nostalgia and a simpler time, actually portrayed an illegal abortion. Did that strike you too? Definitely. And I remember reading somewhere that the screenwriter, Eleanor Bergstein, insisted that that be in there. Probably, if you're going to be telling a story in that time frame, frame, you know, at some level, it becomes dishonest if you don't put these things in. It's sort of like that. Mm-hmm. It, it was a fact of life, you know, these things did happen and they probably happened pretty close to that way. And like you said, you know, I mean, I think one effect of erasing abortion from screen narratives, it kind of helps us ignore it and conflate abortion with stigma and silence. And it's like, no, that's actually the way it was. You know, that's that was the problem. You know, that's what did drive it into the shadows. And that's what did make it unsafe and, and potentially deadly for women. Wait, so, so you said that that starts to disappear after the 80s. And how and, and why? Well, that's the great question. We did have these kinds of, you know, classic rom-coms. I think escapism became a, a, a much higher value across the board. Social realism sort of faded from the scene. We got more interested in escapist fantasies, whether they were Star Wars, you know, and Raiders of the Lost Ark, or even kind of those beautiful Nora Ephron, Harry Met Sally, Sleepless Mm -hmm. in Seattle, movies about real people for sure, but that just had that kind of gloss on them where... We just didn't see it. And I do think probably the rise of the of the fundamentalist right wing and the their vocalism and their mm. skill basically at working the refs, you know. Oh, interesting. They did it politically, they did it culturally in Hollywood. Look, the the only thing they care about is making money. And if they think that they're going to alienate a certain percentage, if not fifty percent of their audience. They're not going to do it. And if they can kind of easily excise a plot point that's just going to make people mad, (laughs) then it's just the path of least resistance. Even though a lot of these movies were written and made by men, like Parenthood was written by two men and directed by Ron Howard, it does get into who's making the movies. And when men are the studio chiefs and men are writing and directing these films and they're making them for themselves... And they are the first audience. Hmm. I just I just don't think it's going to be top of mind for those gatekeepers or those artists to say like, oh, let's make sure that we have a realistic portrayal of a woman's right to choose in this movie. Like it's just, you know, if if anything, you know, either they're not going to think of it or if they do think of it, it's going to be icky and they don't want to deal with it. Then you say that there's this kind of disappearance of abortion narratives and movies in the 90s and the early 2000s. And then it seems to come back a little bit in in comedies, um, but in a 
in a very different way. And so you mentioned Juno and Knocked Up as two examples of that that really stick out to me, too. So maybe you can talk a little bit about Juno first and, and that movie and what you see was happening with abortion in that movie. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it was you know, and both of those movies come out in two thousand seven, which is really interesting to me. Um, hmm, I didn't realize that. Yeah, the hive mind at work, I guess. But so Juno is this movie about a high schooler who gets pregnant unexpectedly, and she agrees to have the baby for a couple who desperately want a child. And it's it's a comedy. Um, it introduced Elliot Page, who was a really charming protagonist and very irreverent. You know, it was written by a woman, Diablo Cody, you know, and it had this kind of indie patina, right? I mean, it was just, it was very hip and it was very snarky and self-aware and lots of pop cultural references. I think realistically speaking, that young woman would have probably thought very seriously about about an abortion, you know, in terms Mm -hmm. of her future and what she had in mind for herself. But of course, for her to take that seriously or to let alone pursue it, it would have destroyed the plot, um, which is the pregnancy plot. So they have her go into a family planning center that is so gross. So unpleasant. Let's listen to a little bit of that tape, because I found that really surprising, too, that it really, um, looking back at the time, and I don't think it struck me when I watched it, but it's a, it's a very unflattering portrayal of a of an abortion clinic. Welcome to Women Now, where women are trusted friends. Please put your hands where I can see them and surrender any bombs. I thought this scene was really fascinating because it starts out with Juno, like, interacting with a girl from her high school who's protesting outside of the abortion clinic and obviously is, like, you know, like, save the babies. Your, your baby probably has a beating heart, you know. It can feel pain. And it has fingernails. And, and is you know the 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 you know the protagonist is like clearly uh, derisive of this girl or thinks that she's kind of dumb for showing up and protesting. And so you get the sense that this is a a, a young woman who believes in a woman's you know right to abortion and and thinks the anti-abortion movement is stupid. But then the scene changes and she goes inside and then you hear kind of this play out. This is the part where she's just kind of like sitting there waiting for her appointment, but then. All these other women around her, they're like kind of um, fiddling and tapping their nails and like clearly nervous. And there's just like this cacophony of sounds of nervous, fidgety people around her. And then she just like panics and runs out of the abortion clinic with like no real explanation, right? That she's just, you know, somehow overcome by fidgety women and is like, I can't do this and just runs out of there. It's, it's strange. It's very strange. And again, it's like, um, it's, it's the way that Diablo Cody solved that narrative problem, you know, which is how do we credibly, how do we credibly get this young woman out of that clinic? <laughs> and so I guess the only credible solution is to have it be so unpleasant and so, sort of creepy. And, you know, the young woman at the counter is completely kind of apathetic and a little bit contemptuous. It's not a place of compassion. It's not a healthcare center. That's what Planned Parenthood is. It's it's healthcare for women, but it's not portrayed that way at all in that scene. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd heard that that Planned Parenthood officials and, and also doctors who who were in specifically obstetricians that, that they were really upset with this um with the scene from the movie. Yeah, and and understandably so. But again, that's what that was the demand of the fiction. You know, 
I, I think I read something in the ensuing years that Diablo Cody realizes, I think she has since kind of apologized for that. Oh, interesting. Um, you know, yeah. having realized that that was just not, it was an unfair portrayal. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, I just think these things matter. Representation does matter. And how mm-hmm. you represent things and, and women and women making choices, it really does matter. And that didn't, I don't think it really helped. And, and especially when you think about a woman, you know, teenager otherwise thinking about what it would be like if they were to get an abortion or if they're facing a decision about um, about whether or not to get an abortion. And if they haven't gotten one before or have not been inside of a Planned Parenthood or whatever and don't know what to expect. I mean, I think if you have that vision in your head of this is what it'll be like and it'll be dirty and skeevy and a little scary, then, um, you know, that, that can weigh into people's thinking about what they want to do. So you you mentioned that Knocked Up came out the same year, and I think that's another interesting corollary because that that movie also has a protagonist who I think to many of us is like, this woman definitely would have gotten an abortion in real life, you know? And and so maybe you can talk a little bit about about that movie and the plot and and where um where this decision about an abortion figures in. So this is a comedy starring Katherine Hagel and Seth Rogen, directed by Judd Apatow. And Catherine Hagel is a pretty, pretty directed, driven career woman. And she meets the Seth Rogen character while she's out. You know, they're both in a club and they have too much to drink and have a one night stand. They are complete polar opposites. So they go their separate ways. And then she realizes that she is pregnant. Now, again, like the whole point of the film is this, you know, these, this mismatched couple finding commonality in the course of this kind of calamitous, unexpected pregnancy. Mm. So in order to get them back together, you know, she has to see this pregnancy to term. So in order to do that, abortion has to be off the table. And in her case, that option is represented by her mother, who is presenting it as such a selfish kind of callous, this kind of Mm -hmm. cold, imperious character that it's just, it's just, Immediately, Apatow is like recruiting the audience against that decision. Um, Just in terms of the way that, you know, the person whose uh, voice he puts it in and the kind of voice it is. Yeah. Well, let's listen to that conversation between the the main character, Allison, and and her mom. Allison, just take care of it. Take care of it. Move on. What's going to happen with your career? How how are you going to tell them? It's important to me that you be supportive. I cannot be supportive of this. This is a mistake. This is a big, big mistake. Now, think about your stepsister. Now, you remember what happened with her? She had the same situation as you, and she had it taken care of. You know, I I think it did, like, contribute to this feeling of shame or embarrassment around, um, yeah, around, around a decision like this. Absolutely. It's a narrative problem, but it does, I think, accrue in such a way combined with this really superior political organizing on the part of the anti-choice movement all along. I do think it's part of what got us here. I really do. I do believe that. So thinking about how film has started to change a bit, I think, since, you know, that 2000 era, um, Obvious Child is a movie that really sticks out to me um, and in many ways has a almost identical premise as Mm -hmm. knocked up Mm -hmm. like two people have a one-night stand and she gets pregnant and 
decides what to do from there, but plays out so differently. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to hear a little bit about your experience of watching that movie and and what you thought was really notable about it. I, I, I greeted that movie with so much kind of relief. It, it stars Jenny Slate, but it was written and directed by a filmmaker named Gillian Robespierre. And like you said, it's a very similar setup. But in this case, the protagonist, who happens to be a stand-up comedian, like Slate herself, decides to terminate the pregnancy. And so the way that she and her love interest, they, they you know, they come together, but they come together in a completely different way. I mean, it was genuinely funny. It was really touching, very humane. Mm-hmm. I kind of felt seen in terms of just that this is the way most women kind of experience life. And it was finally put upon screen in a way that just, it, yeah, it just felt really grounded. So in this movie, the main character is a stand-up comedian, and she decides to talk about her decision to get an abortion while she is in the middle of a set at a bar. I came here tonight on a very different mission, and uh, that is to um, say to you that, um, sorry, which is to um, say to you um, that I am pregnant. (laughs) Okay, all right, testing the waters, I dropped that one down. Uh, The second thing that I would like to say right now out loud, and I'm gonna say it out loud right now, out loud right now, I'm fine, everything's fine, just rolling along with this out loud right now, um, is that I uh, am going to have an abortion Okay, okay, keep breathing. I don't think that it skimps on, like, embarrassment and awkwardness around abortion, right? It's not like the Jenny Slate character is some kind of model for how to communicate clearly and, uh, you know, effectively and respectfully about, like, important reproductive decisions. And so I appreciate that there is some of that there of her, like, not knowing how to talk about it. And in some ways, that, that feels kind of realistic. It's so human scale in all of those things. And I know that in interviews, Gillian Robespierre, the filmmaker, made this like indirect response to the Junos and knocked ups of the world. So I I believe that's what Robespierre was directly responding to was like, these are just not realistic, you know. Um, They didn't speak to her or her generation. This movie just felt like such a breath of fresh air. I think the one last thing that I want to talk about with Obvious Child is the actual depiction of an abortion. And I think like so often in these movies, it's like you're in the waiting room and then they go behind the door when someone calls them through and then like cut to the next scene where it's afterwards and like either something kind of dark and sad happened or, you know, for some reason they didn't end up getting the abortion or whatever. But you never really you're never really in that room. And I thought, I mean, it's like this beautiful scene where Jenny Slate's character is kind of sitting in the chair and the doctor, nurse or health professional or whoever comes over, tells her that she's uh, a sedative is going to start kicking in. And you see Jenny Slate sort of just laying there and she's falling asleep because she's on a sedative and she's also like crying a little bit but she also seems kind of you know happy and okay and and not uncomfortable um and I just thought it was like a really uh a really poignant 
depiction of an actual abortion. I do want to ask, it do, you know, it seems like Obvious Child is part of this newer wave of films and TV shows that, you know, are either written or directed or produced by women that are starting to reckon with abortion in a, in a much realer way. But I think the the huge exception to that for me is that you know, every movie that we've talked about so far in this conversation has been about a white woman or a white couple and that we really haven't seen as much of those narratives around decisions around abortion um, in in movies featuring or made for or by people of color. And, and I wonder why you think that is. It could be because we haven't seen enough film narratives around people of color just in general. There was a beautiful film that came out a few years ago called Premature, which was directed by Rashad Ernesto Green. And it was written by Green and a really gifted young woman named Zora Howard, who played the protagonist. And it's a young woman who's just graduated high school. She's about ready to start college. She starts dating a guy that summer between senior and freshman year and does encounter an unexpected pregnancy. And I, you know, um, she does a self- administered medication abortion, not not a welcome part of her summer, but one that she handles with maturity and clear headedness. And so I think I would I would point to that one as um I don't know, just another another really kind of encouraging example of what happens when women tell our own stories. And I going back to kind of the male gazeness of it all We've been treated to so many heroes' journeys and sort of coming of age of of the young men and their trip to adulthood. And the more that we see those sorts of narratives put in the hands of of women, we are going to see this because that's the truth that we're going to be telling. You know, that's the truth of our lives and that's what's going to be coming out on screen. One thing that kind of stuck out to me recently was, um, I I don't know if you watch Insecure on HBO, which just wrapped up its final season a few months ago. Um, But there's a storyline in there. And again, the spoilers here are plentiful. But one of the main characters, Lawrence, ends up having a relationship with a woman named Condola. And then they break up. But after they break up and he gets back together with Issa, the main character, um, Condola finds out that she's pregnant. And you get the impression that Lawrence would prefer if she had an abortion, though he respects her right to choose, and she's adamant that she's not going to get one. Um, And it's a point of conflict between them, um, and she eventually has the baby. But then in this last season, as Lawrence starts to kind of step up to fatherhood and and really um, build a relationship with with, um, his son, he kind of talks to her about how he feels so much shame about having even considered wanting her to get an abortion. And then she kind of tells him it's okay and tells him that, you know, in secret that she also actually thought about getting an abortion, even though she was so publicly adamant about it. You know, I know this last year has been a lot for both of us and uh, hasn't always felt easy or felt good or, I don't know, I just, you know, if things had gone different than... No, he wouldn't be here, and well, he's the best thing that ever happened to me. It really makes me happy to hear you say that. I just, um... What? Oh, what I... No, no, it's just, um... When I was pregnant and, um, our situation wasn't good, 
I actually thought about um, I'm sorry you shouldn't feel bad about that but I thought it was a really poignant kind of storyline. And yet the, that actress who played Condola, she she says, um, she, she talked about it after that season that she got so much backlash for being a woman and especially a black woman who was sort of adamant about not having an abortion and that people thought that the, the storyline was either unrealistic or not progressive enough or that, you know, and I feel like in, in some ways it, it feels like there are so few depictions of abortion in TV and movies still and realistic depictions that people want a certain narrative when they do see them and they get mad when a woman has a right to choose and chooses not to get an abortion or has, you know, feelings, whether they're ethical or religious or personal, mm-hmm. whatever, that that they decide not to not to do it. And I do think that the issue of abortion does have a different valence for the black community, right? And like you said, I think as long as it's portrayed honestly, you know, intellectually honestly as a choice, then it's the choice that should be respected, you know, not one particular choice. So then one movie that we've seen after Obvious Child is Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, which I've heard a lot of friends talk about very fondly. Can you talk a little bit about that movie and the premise and and what it's trying to achieve? This was a really extraordinary film that came out a couple of years ago, written and directed by Eliza Hittman. It's about a young woman, a teenager in Pennsylvania. And of course, Pennsylvania has some of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country. And when she finds out that she's pregnant, she goes for pregnancy counseling, which is sort of presented as neutral. And then the only option they're going to give her is to keep the baby. It's a religious outfit sort of masquerading as a family planning Mm -hmm. clinic. So she and her cousin, her best friend, go to New York to obtain a termination of a pregnancy. And so it's really just a very closely observant drama about these two young women making this journey to New York. And one of the barriers that Autumn, the protagonist, encounters, which is when she finds out that it's going to be a two-day procedure instead of a one-day procedure, it's just, I think, really illustrates how almost arbitrary it is, depending on where you live in this country, (laughs) what this means. You know, it can either be another healthcare decision or it can be an absolute ordeal that just takes everything out of you in terms of time and emotional energy and money and worry. You're in the second trimester. This is going to be a two-day procedure, okay? Is there any way you can do it all in one day? Unfortunately, it has to be done over the course of two days. We have to put dilators in the cervix so that the cervix can open up slowly overnight. That way the procedure can be done safely tomorrow. Will you be able to come back tomorrow? Yeah. Okay. Do you have a place to stay tonight? I know you came from far away. Yeah, yeah. Where are you gonna stay? I don't know, I was just gonna go to a hotel or something. Okay. Hotels are pretty expensive. Do you have the money for that? I'll figure it out. I find it so interesting that this movie really isn't, as you said, about that decision to of whether to have an abortion or not, but really about how to get an abortion when you don't have access, which in many ways 
you know, reflects the the legal state of the country for the last few years, that it's not whether or not abortion is technically legal, but what are the hurdles in the way that essentially makes it inaccessible and therefore um, not available at all. So, so I wonder, do you think that's a theme that we're going to see in other movies and, and TV shows coming up that less about like, should I get an abortion or not, but more about like what happens when the access part is the problem? That'll be a big theme because I just, I think it'll be the tale of two cities. It's going to be the tale of two countries. Hmm. In terms of the part of the country where abortion is legal and the part of the country where it is not. Exactly. We'll be seeing a lot of stories like, never rarely, sometimes always, where it's a journey, you know, and that, for better or for worse, that does lend itself to cinema. You know, that that's a trope in, in movies is it's always somebody taking a trip or a journey or a quest and... Here you have it, you know, it's it's just the kind of Byzantine, punitive, cruel lengths to which women are going to be put in order to exercise autonomy over their own bodies. You also recently wrote about going to Sundance and seeing this new movie called The Happening. It's a film that has an abortion plot line. Tell me a little bit about that. It's just out from from France and it was part of a, a group of Movies. I was really struck this year at Sundance how many films uh, were made by women. Um, this among them, the, the filmmaker's name is Audrey Dewan. And there was happening, there, were, there was a movie called The Janes about the Jane Collective, which was a group of women in Chicago that provided illegal, safe, illegal abortions um, in the years right before Roe v. Wade was passed. I, I really came away with the sense of like, wow, when when women tell the stories, these are the stories we tell, you know, these are the stories that that it's almost like it, that people are kind of just can't wait to kind of get out and express honestly. It'll be very interesting to see what happens in the next few years now that the political landscape is, you know, I don't think these were made with an eye toward coming out at the exact moment when the Supreme Court would be considering Roe v. Wade. Those things converge, but maybe not on purpose. But I think it will be very interesting to see what how the artistic community and how women filmmakers and showrunners and culture makers, you know, respond in the next couple of years to the new changed circumstance. And what do you think is at stake here? I mean, if, if you're making the argument that that in the past, not only did movies about abortion reflect our feelings about about abortion rights, but in some ways influenced or, or helped people shape their own opinions about abortion. I mean, do you think that that is still a possibility here, that these movies that we're seeing coming out now and we'll see in, in, in coming years, that that can change how people think about this moment and about abortion rights right now? What worries me is we've almost sort of skipped a generation, right? So it's sort of like, we start seeing screen stories reflecting the new realities of abortion in America, which is that it, it's gone back to being criminalized and, you know, women are, you know, f- forced to have pregnancies and bring pregnancies to term. It's almost like we never got a chance to see it normalized, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. it was like it, the, the windows were so very brief and they were such exceptions to an otherwise, the rule of otherwise being just erased entirely or stigmatized or played for laughs or played for the ick factor or whatever. I don't see public opinion really, you know, it has not changed in 
five decades that much. I'm not sure how much is going to change in the next five. And it just would be, it would have been nice if our popular culture could have been a little bit more aligned with the audience. That, that in some ways, what's more, in, in your mind, what's more important now even than having these depictions of what it was like pre-Roe or what the kind of dire consequences are of making abortion illegal, that that, that is secondary to the opportunity of continuing to make movies that show abortion as safe and, you know, not depressing and like showing abortion in a more positive light is what you'd actually want to see more of now. Right. And I guess, I, I mean, I do think it's too late. That's what I mean about like, that's here we are, you know, I mean, we've, we had five decades over which we could have maybe seen it be depicted a little bit more honestly and is a little bit more part of our lives. I don't think there's a direct cause and effect, but I don't think it helped. <laughs> you know, I just, mm-hmm. I don't think it necessarily helped that it was just so marginalized and completely erased from the conversation. And then the only times it did come in, it was really distorted and stigmatized. So I think we've kind of found out what happens when you create a cultural silence around something. Anne, thank you so very much for this. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Anne Hornaday is the chief film critic for The Post. The story was produced by Ariel Plotnick and edited by Maggie Penman. After the break, we go to London, where Queen Elizabeth is celebrating 70 years as the British monarch. We'll be right back. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. We're celebrating Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee, and uh, Jubilee is an anniversary that celebrates the life or reign of a British monarch, and right now we're celebrating her 70 years on the throne, which is a very long time to be in a gig. Carla Adam is a correspondent for The Post based in London. This week, she's been covering the Jubilee celebrations that are taking place across England. Concerts, parades, and a lot of picnicking that stretch over four main days. But for some Brits, it's also brought up a lot of questions about the future of the British monarchy. So on Thursday morning, I went down to Buckingham Palace, and this is when the festivities really kicked off. And so I went down there for something called Trooping the Color. This is a a military parade, and it's done every year around this time to celebrate the Queen's official birthday. Only this year... It was it was special because it's it wasn't just trooping the color; it was trooping the color on the Queen's platinum uh, jubilee. 
So, you know, instead of maybe thousands of people coming down, we had tens and tens of thousands of people flocking down to the palace. Oh, it's, it's a lovely atmosphere. It's a wonderful atmosphere. Everyone talks to each other. Everyone becomes friends instantly. Um, there's lots of patriotism. Um, I don't think there's another country in the world that does pomp and pageantry like the British. I talked to people from, from around the world. I talked to an American who flown in just, just for the event. And you've flown in from the States? Yes, I'm from um, Forestville, Maryland, right outside D.C. For most people, she's the only monarch that they've ever known. And and she's also, she's someone who everybody knows, and yet we don't know her that well. She's never given an interview. If she has political views, we don't know them, and that's very important uh, in, in Britain's constitutional monarch, that that she is apolitical. But it also means that she you know, she's not divisive that way. I think around 20-ish or so royal families left in, in, in the world, and a lot of countries have, have decided to, to ditch the royal families, and, and Britain hasn't. And I think part of it is, is they, they like the ceremony. I mean, when I was speaking to people down at the palace today, many people said, we're really proud that, that we do this, that you know, we have royals and palaces and, and sort of the theatrical element of it. It's something that, that they think distinguishes them and, and that they like. At the same time, there are polarizing issues there as well. You know, Harry and Meghan's departure has, has, has very much polarized people. So I think that she's been really keen and palace officials have been very keen to keep the focus on her and not the focus on, say, Harry and Meghan in the UK or where is Prince Andrew, but to try as best they can to keep the focus on, on a woman who is largely uncontroversial, um, while there are other controversies circling within the royal family. I spoke to a, a dad named Mark, and he was there with his 10-year-old daughter named Chloe, a younger generation. And Mark was making the point that, that the royals, you know, they may want to consider doing some rebranding I think attitudes will change and they need to appeal to a younger audience as well. Uh, the Queen has been obviously monarch for 70 years, uh, but it's time to pass the beacon on as such. How do you get a younger generation on board? The royal family tends to be more popular amongst older generations, so so what you know does it need to do? And you know, the next monarch is going to possibly be in his 70s or 80s. So what kind of things do they want to do in order to appeal to a younger generation? And it's something that they're going to have to think about. Carla Adam is a foreign correspondent for The Post. This story was produced by Sabi Robinson. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Ted Muldoon is our senior producer. Our editor is Alexis Diao. Jordan Marie Smith, Ariel Plotnik, and Renny Svarnovsky are producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. The post-director of audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. 
I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.